I see, you know, it's nice to see everybody here after last uh, Sunday's Weird Wild Sermon. Um, I debated about putting that one online if we finally got the website up and going and all that, but it's up there. Um, but this week we're going to stay a little more grounded in everything, uh, thankfully. So, uh, but, but we ended up with the context really for this week, what we talked about last week, uh, that man had been corrupted in multiple and a variety of ways. Certainly at the beginning of the fall of man with uh, you know, general sin, but also you know, corrupted with the whole idea of, of angels and, and all that kind of stuff. We don't want to go back into that. Uh, we have you know, some young ones in here today too, so I, I don't want to go there. But, but God preserved out of all that at least one family that wasn't corrupted. And it says in the scriptures that Noah walked with God. And he had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. In fact, uh, let's get into Genesis 6 here, and it says, Now Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. Noah had three uh, three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had, corrupt, uh, had corrupted their ways. And we talked about last week of different ways that they were corrupted. And it says here in verse 13, So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people, and for the earth is filled with violence because of uh, them. I'm surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So make yourself an ark of cypress wood, make rooms in it, and coat it with pitch inside and out. Now earlier it talked about man not living past 120 years of age. Now, do you know of anybody that's like, you know, up there? You know, I mean, we, we see that in fulfillment. I mean, you know, there's not that many people who live up to that age. But, you know, this is the same amount of time that it took Noah to build, his, uh, to build the ark, for Noah and his sons to gather together and to build the ark. But more to the point, it was a 120-year grace period that God was giving to the people because Noah and Enoch before him and, and, and Methuselah and all those guys, they were preaching the word of God to these people. They were telling these people what was going to happen. So they had a 120-year period of grace to come to God when people could repent for their sins and could recognize the Savior and get things right with God. During that time, like I said, he had two, at least two witnesses, Enoch and Noah, that both preached the generation. And, and in 1 Peter 3.18, it says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. So the whole idea of bringing people to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit after being made alive. He went and made proclamation, uh, proclamation, uh, proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were being disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight and all, were saved through water. And in 2 Peter 5, it talks about how God did not spare the ancient world. And Peter calls Noah a preacher of righteousness one who tells the truth. He preached for 120 years while he was working and building the ark. Now, did he preach the whole time? No, his actions were preaching too. And again, our actions preach to the world. They proclaim to the world what we truly believe in and what we say we believe in, but then again, we don't necessarily follow. You follow what I'm saying? Our actions have a result for other people to see. Enoch, which we talked about a, you know, a few weeks ago, you know, where God revealed in him the future of what was going to happen, and he named his child Methuselah, means when he dies, it shall come. 
In other words, when he dies, the flood, the destruction would be upon us. And Enoch changed his ways at that point and became such a righteous man that God literally brought him to heaven before the destruction. Both these guys preached about the coming judgment on the people of their day. They needed to repent. They needed to get their lives right with God. They also preached to the whole world. And, and you know, some people go, well, the whole world? I mean, how did they get from Russia to you know, Australia to the United States. No, 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 no. This was pre-world destruction. This is when landmass was all one continent. God divided the continents up after the destruction. Everybody lived in the same region, so everybody would have been talking about knowing what was going on. The, the word over 120 years would have got out, and it was plenty of time for people to repent. I mean, think about it. Noah's building a boat... They didn't need a boat. Noah said it's going to rain. Rain, what is rain? Water coming out of the sky? What do you mean? We, get, we have rivers of water. What do you mean it's going to come from the sky? It had never happened before. Noah's crazy, they thought, and so forth. But 120 years he went on this. is a long time. It is, you know, it is the grace of God that we see here. God gives everyone an acceptable period of time to hear of salvation. Paul says if you hear his voice... Do not harden your heart. Because James says, our life is but a vapor. Our life is but a vapor. Here today, gone tomorrow. It's amazing to me that, you know, over the past seven years, I mean, Brandon's, uh, you know, seven and a half years old. I mean, it seems like yesterday he was just a little baby screaming. You know what I'm saying? I mean, Grayson, he's three years old. I mean, that, it's amazing how time flies. And you ask anybody, depending on their age, and especially after they start having children, about how quickly time goes by. Our life is but a vapor. Here today, gone tomorrow. We only have a short time on this earth compared to eternity. And so, you know, so we need to respond to God because this, or, or there is a time where God says enough is enough. God gives a person time after time after time. And finally, like a good parent, enough is enough, right? That's how we discipline our children. You know, we keep telling them, we keep telling them, we keep telling them, and then we finally say enough is enough. Here's, your, here's your, the consequences of your actions if you do such and such. So, Brandon, you're not in this, you know, your own little boat world. Everybody gets disciplined, right? All the parents, raise, do your heads. Everybody disciplines their children, okay? Brandon wanted to stay in here because of Doris, and, and uh, uh, so did uh, Nicole's daughter and stuff. So they're, they're all excited about that. So. But 120 years is a lot, a lot of time here um, before God says enough, enough is enough. So in verse eight, eight, 13, it says, So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I'm surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So make yourself an ark of cypress wood, make rooms in it, and coat it with pitch inside and out. Now, you might have heard the word gopher wood, different translations, cypress wood, gopher wood, um, are both, it's like a red wood. It's almost indestructible, okay? It's a, it's a wood, I mean, all our door frames around this church are all red wood and stuff like that. Uh, you know, they don't build with that kind of stuff anymore because they're tired of people chopping down all the big redwood trees, right? Uh, they grow slowly. They're indestructible. They're, they're very, I mean, they're a hardy wood. And pitch in the Hebrew is kofar, which is interesting. It has another meaning other than pitch. It also means atonement. 
So basically, it's like the Holy Spirit is using the ark to represent our position with Christ. It represents our salvation with Christ. First of all, first of all it's a place of refuge and safety. Inside is safety. Outside, not safety. You know what I'm saying? Storm's coming. Outside of Christ, it is not safe. God says, in, in, in our translation, we're going to read it in a second, but he says, go into the ark. But, but those words in the Hebrew is more of an invitation. It's not like, go into the ark. It's more like, come into the ark. It's an invitation, you know, uh, not a command. And we're invited the same way with Christ. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you what? Rest. Rest. Secondly, the ark was a place of absolute security. God told Noto to put tar or pitch on the inside and out. It was a completely sealed ark. We are completely saved. Jesus doesn't leak in a sense, okay? In fact, if you go talk to, to Navy guys, they will tell you you don't need pitch on inside and out. You really only need protection on the outside of the wood, okay? Not the inside. But God does it on both completely saved. Third, God shut the door of the ark and sealed them in. He sealed them in for one year and 17 days. And when they came out of the ark, Noah and his family and all the animals, none were lost. God seals us, seals us into his kingdom. In John 6, 39, it says, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. We are sealed in Christ. Fourthly, the ark only had one door. One door. As Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. Jesus is the only door to God, is the only door to heaven. John 14, 6 says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. John 10, 9 in New King James, I love this. It says, I am the door. He's the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved, and he will go in and out and find pasture. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I've come that, that they may have life, and they may have it more abundantly. God wants us, our lives, to be an abundant life here and then in the future. Number five, the ark has three levels here. Our relationship with Christ is, is threefold here. We have been saved. In other words, we're not going to hell. That happens when we accept Jesus Christ. We're being saved. That is our struggle with sin. We're, you know, the Holy Spirit lives within us. And it's, uh, you know, we're being saved from the power of sin. And we shall be saved from the presence of sin. And that's when we go to be with him in heaven. Three different levels. Revelations 21 tells us that there'll be a new Jerusalem with Christ, and no sin shall enter that city. Only the redeemed shall enter there. That's you and I. So Noah and the ark is a, is a type of Christ. We're sealed in with Christ, uh, you know, by the Holy Spirit for eternity now. Inside the ark is life. Outside the ark, in, outside of Christ, is death. Noah felt secure in the ark, not trapped. He was saved. We should feel secure in Christ. 
We're not trapped. Let's get out of this mentality of, well, I can't do this, I can't do that, I, I, I really would love to do this, but I can't because I'm a Christian. No, 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 no. You, you choose not to do those things because you're a Christian. It's not a can't thing. We've we got to flip that around. Being in Christ means that I'm secure from the coming judgment in this world. Hebrews uh, 7.25 says, Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him, because he always lives to intercede for them. We are saved, and we shall, be re- you know, we shall remain saved. And, and this, is, this is key. We need to never doubt our salvation. Christ is up there interceding on our behalf. God is on our side. We need to remember that. God is on our side. Isn't that great? That's a great thing. Because I would hate it if God was against us. You know what I'm saying? God is on our side. Every time I sin, Jesus is up there saying to the Father, don't allow that into the court. My blood had already paid for that sin. When the, when the world wants to come convict me, when Satan wants to come convict me, Jesus stands up and says, whoa, 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 wait a second. Already taken care of. Already taken care of. He intercedes for me. His blood has already paid for that. I'm sure that Noah stumbled and fell down a lot in the ark as it was kind of moving in the ocean, going back and forth. I don't know about you. Have you, have you been in a you know, boat in a storm? It's a lot of fun, um, depending on your attitude. You know, when you're, when you're 23, 24, it can be a lot of fun. When you're older, not so much fun, you know. I've been on that where my dad's like freaking out. We're going across the lake uh, in Canada, and he's freaking out because the waves are kind of above the side of the boat. You know, as the boat goes up, you go down, and you see water on both sides above, you know. He's freaking out. I'm just like, I'm enjoying it. I'm like, yeah, this is awesome, <laughs> you know. Uh, but, you know, I, I'm sure that on a boat that, that Noah stumbled and fell in those just as we're going to stumble and fall in our life, we're going to blow it in our walk with Christ. But see, the, the key is Noah didn't fall out of the ark. He was shut into the ark. He was sealed in. Just as we're sealed in with Christ, we're not going to fall out. So don't doubt your salvation on that end. We'll sin, but we get to confess. We never fall out of God's grace. He's holding on to us, and he's protecting us. And once we come to Christ, we are sealed in. We have everlasting life. It's called eternal life for a reason. God just didn't give us life until we blow it, and then we're done. I mean, what kind of, you know, what kind of gift would that be? God gives us eternal life for eternity. God, God could not have promised this if it was dependent on us. If it was dependent on Eleanor for saving Eleanor, Eleanor would not be saved. You know what I'm saying? And you can include your name in that. It's not dependent on us. We're sealed in Christ when we accept Christ. Ephesians 1.13 says, And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you believed You were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to praise, to the praise of his glory. See, we're redeemed. We're glorified. Once the Spirit is in us, we are guaranteed. If you have accepted him, then he has accepted you. The Lord's Spirit lives in you, and that's the down payment for in the, the end 
because it lives in us. John 5, 24 says, Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but is crossed over from death to life. This is a one-way door. Once you're born of the Spirit, you can't be unborn. How many of you have been unborn? Your, your mother had you, right? Anybody unborn? Anybody got put back in? Mom's like, no, not going to happen. Jude 24 says, To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and without great joy. To the only God, our Savior, be glory. Now back to Genesis. From a practical standpoint, as I talked about it, you only needed pitch or tar on the outside of being waterproofed. So why did Noah do it on both sides? Well, first off, God told him to. But it's also as a preservative. You put this pitch on the wood, it preserves it. And so future generations would know about the ark. For an unbeliever, this is one of the hardest stories to come to grips with. This story and the, and the story of Noah. They say, <laughs> no, way it can, you know, no way it can be true. No way. But God preserved the ark for future people to see. After the flood, the Bible says the ark came to rest on, on Mount Ararat. And I believe it's still there somewhere, covered in ice and snow, parts of it, you know, between 13,000 and 17,000 feet. During the summers when it's really hot, we find historical records about finding pieces of wood up there above the tree line. In 275 B.C., Barossus was a Babylonian Babylon historian. He wrote, but of the ship grounded in Ar Armenia, that's modern Turkey where Mount Ararat is, some parts still remain in the mountain. Some get pitched from the ship by scraping it off. Around 75 A.D., Josephus, the Jewish historian, wrote, said that the locals collected relics of the ark to show them off to this day. In AD 180, Theopolis of Antioch wrote, the remains of the ark to this day can be seen in the mountain. There's a man from Armenia who is in America and describes it as a boy seeing it in the mountains in 1856. His father and three atheists and him went to find the ark. And when they did, the atheists tried to destroy it, but they couldn't because the wood had been petrified. In 1918, one of the atheist scientists who tried to destroy it admitted it on his deathbed that the story was true. In 1876, a British scientist climbed, climbed Ararat and found a four-foot-long hand-told timber at over 13,000 feet, again, above the tree line. In 1916, six Turkish soldiers claimed to have seen the ark. A Russian aviator named Vladimir Rosinsky claimed, yeah, you try to say those names all the time, uh, claimed that the discovery of Noah's ark, he was in the southern part of Russia, and he was testing out a new plane and flew over, uh, you know, the Mount Ararat, and he described the, uh, the boat as the size of a battleship partially buried in a lake. And the size of the door to the thing, he estimated, was over 20 foot square. They sent an exposition, uh, you know, expedition at the Tsar's orders. And, uh, 
and the results and pictures are right back, right before the czar's government was overthrown and all that evidence was lost and all the hoopla and all that kind of stuff. In 1936, another British explorer hiked the mountain and found it 14,000 feet interlocking hand-tooled timber. Many other attempts have been tried to find it. But unfortunately, the Turkish government has interfered in any more attempts. Why is that? It's a Muslim government. It doesn't want it to be found. It doesn't want anything that will, you know, substantiate the Bible. In recent year, years, you know, terrorist groups have made Mount Ararat their home base in, in, in many ways. And so no one is trying to explore it. No one's really gone there in the last 20 or 30 years because of these issues. Now, I could go on and on. You could get lost in all these different reports of uh, different things that have happened over time. But I think that's enough, don't you? You're sitting there going, you've talked long enough. Yes, it's enough, okay? Just give me a response. Well, let's get back to Genesis 6.15. This is how you are to build the ark. The ark is to be 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, and 30 cubits high. Make a roof for it, leaving below the roof and opening a cubic high all around Put a door in the side of the ark and make lower, middle, and upper decks. So what's a cubic? The average size of a cubic is between elbow and tip of finger, which is approximately 18 inches. It is what uh, Noah would have used. It's an easy way to measure things. Um, now I'm sure if you took Mark's arm, he's a little taller than I am, you know. And you put ours, I mean, it would be a little bit longer, but, it, but you know, consistently, it's about 18 inches. Now Mark's going to go home and measure, I know. But it means that the, the ark was roughly 450 foot long by 75 foot wide by 45 feet high. It's a massive barge. Think of a giant shoebox that could float. It's about one and a half times the size of a football field. This is a huge boat. I mean, with these dimensions and the way boats work, they could have survived 200-foot waves, it said. The USS Oregon, which was a boat built by our government, built to these um, close dimensions here, proved itself to be the most stable battleship ever built up until, you know, lately with all our modern computer stuff, it's a little different. But before computers and all that kind of, the most stable battleship ever built. It contained three levels, the ark did, each about 15 foot high. This is 1.4 million cubic feet. One author said the, the ark carried two of every family of animals. And, and if, it, if it did this, there would have been around 700 animals on the ark. But really it was two of every species. It wasn't two of every kind of dog that's ever out there. It was two dogs. You see my point? Two of this, two of that which would have been somewhere around 35,000 animals. The average size of a land animal is smaller than a sheep. So before people go, well, there's no way the ark could have held all those. Well, don't think of, you know, 600 elephants on the ark, okay? You've got to think of reality here. It could have carried 136,500 sheep-sized animals in half the ship. This would have been, you know, enough room for Noah and the family and, and plenty of food and other supplies. 
And about this time, somebody goes, wait, wait a second, what about the dinosaurs? How did they fit on the ark? Well, first of all, who, who says that Noah took mature animals on the ark? Who says that Noah took a 30-year-old dinosaur and not a three-month-old dinosaur? You see what I'm saying? It could have been all sorts of different things that he would have done. But let me say this. Scientists have said if you took all the dinosaur bones that they've ever had and you put them to average size, you know what size that is? Size of a chicken or a sheep. You know, we think of all the, you know, Brontosaurus and all the other saurus, you know, all the big ones. Most of the dinosaurs were little bitty animals, okay? So you've got to get your mind a little off of the world's view of things here. Some of them are, you know, obviously big size, but the rest of them. So again, Noah didn't have to bring grown dinosaurs. Now also, God could have decided not to include the dinosaurs on the ark at all. How'd they die out afterward? Did they have enough food? You know, I don't know. All I know is that they went extinct at some point. So how did they survive the ark for a year? Well, supernaturally. I mean, if we're believing in God, supernaturally. Maybe God made them go into hibernation. We know some animals hibernate, right? You know, a bear will hibernate for how long, depending on how cold it is? God can do things supernaturally. You know, we, we try to bullet it all down to what we're, you know, our knowledge is, but reality is our knowledge is this compared to God. You know what I'm saying? So we have to think a little differently. They were docile to get them all there, I'm sure. God just brought them there. He didn't bring them there fighting each other. He got them all there. Verse 17 says, I'm going to bring floodwaters on the earth and destroy all life under the heavens, every creature that has a breath of life in it, and everything on earth will perish. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. You are to bring into the ark two of all the living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you. Two of every kind of bird, every kind of animal, and every kind of creature that moves along the ground will, will come to you to be kept alive. So supernaturally, you have the animals all showing up at the ark. I mean, what a traffic jam that would have been. I mean, those anteaters are always causing problems, you know. The cheetah's getting all mad because he's stuck behind the sloth. I mean, you know. Come on, man, hurry up. Okay, you see where my mind goes. But you're to take every kind of food that is to be eaten and stored away as food for you and then and for them. Noah did everything just as God commanded him. Now in verse 18, it says, But I will establish a covenant with you. This would have been the second of seven covenants that we find in the Bible. A covenant is a very important thing. God calls himself a covenant-keeping God. In other words, God makes a contract with you. God made contracts with, with certain things. He made seven big contracts over time. He has kept his side of the contract on that. And this is an important to God. This is important. Four co covenants were made with Israel alone. And of the four, three are unconditional. In other words, it didn't matter what Israel did. Israel could screw up all they want, but God was going to keep that covenant. So it's not based on Israel's faithfulness to God. They're unconditional. The one that is conditional is the Mosaic Covenant that he made with Moses, where God said, look, if you obey me, I will bless you. If you do not obey me, I will bring curses 
upon you. In other words, they won't bless you. So what are the different covenants? I thought I'd take a little bit of time here to finish up this morning by covering the different seven covenants for you guys that you know, like to take notes, for you guys that like to, to learn the different larger concepts. So the first one is the Adamic covenant. In other words, he made with Adam. And this is found in Genesis 1. We've kind of gone over some of this. But basically it says that you were in control of the earth, in other words, man. We're to tend it, we're to take care of it. They sinned, they ate from the tree that God told them not to. So he pronounced a curse for that sin. And he spoke of future provision of, God's, of, of man's redemption. In other words, God said, because you've done this, I'm shunning you out of the, the garden. You're out on your own. You're going to have to toil. You know, women, you're pain in childbirth. Men, you're going to have to till the ground, all those things that we've already covered. But I'm going to send someone to redeem you. That's the first covenant. The second covenant is this covenant, the Noetic covenant from Noah. And this is when God and Noah, you know, following the departure of Noah and his family and all the animals on the ark. Um, and it go, it's kind of established in Genesis 9, 11, and we'll talk about it a little later. But he says, I, I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all the flesh be cut off on the waters of the flood. And never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. So it's that covenant of, I'm not going to destroy you again with water. The covenant included a sign of God's faithfulness, and that is the what? The rainbow, okay? So don't let that get taken by any other group of people. It's ours, okay? We've got to fight for what God stands for. And this is great for us. Except we also know there's a second coming that the Lord will destroy what? The earth by fire. Second Peter 2 talks about God making new heavens and a new earth, a new Jerusalem that includes those who believe in God. Now the third covenant is the Abrahamic covenant. This is an unconditional covenant. First made to Abraham in Genesis 12, and it promised God's blessing upon Abraham to make his name great and to make his, you know, his progeny into a great nation. In other words, his children, all that. Uh, Paul tells us uh, that the nation that he had uh, that he had in mind was not just Israel. In other words, he was saying, I'm going to make your descendants as, as the stars in the sky, as the, as the sand in the sea. Can you count the sand, you know? Especially if the fish keep making more sand, you know? You can't keep up with it. And that's the same thing, God's covenant with us. And, and Paul's talking about how it, it extends on to Gentiles, which would be you and I who have been called out of the darkness and into the light. In other words, Gentiles and Jews coming to know Christ, part of a new nation. The covenant also promised the blessings to those who, who blessed Abraham and cursing to those who cursed him. God, you know, God vowed to bless the whole world through Abraham's seed. And circumcision was the sign of Abraham's, uh, uh, that he believed in that covenant. And the fulfillment of this covenant is seen in the history of Abraham's descendants and the creation of the nation of Israel in 1948. The worldwide blessing came through Jesus Christ, who is in Abraham's family line. This also includes the land, this covenant, the land that he told Abram to go into Canaan. He basically said, wherever you walk, the land will belong to you and your descendants. And this is unconditional. In other words, it doesn't matter that Israel rejected Christ because God did what? Back then, when you made a covenant, what did you do? You took an animal and you cut him in half. 
and you spread the two halves out, and you walked in between, and you were making the covenant basically saying, if I don't keep my part of the covenant, may what happened to these animals happen to me. And in this covenant, God walked through alone. He didn't make him walk through himself. He didn't make Abraham go through. And, and basically, God is saying, this covenant I am going to keep. The next covenant, the fourth one, is the Palestinian covenant, the land covenant. It ratifies what was already said, the unconditional covenant. It's found in Deuteronomy 30. Noted that God's promise to scatter Israel if they disobeyed God. Did Israel disobey God? Yes. Did they get scattered? Multiple times. And then they came back together when? May 14th, 1948. 1948. After the end of World War II, Israel declared themselves a nation. And twice uh, this covenant has been fulfilled with the Babylonian captivity and subsequent uh, releasing and rebuilding of Jerusalem under Cyrus the Great. And the destruction of Israel happened in, in Jerusalem in AD 70. And then the nation coming back together in 1948. It's interesting to me they are in the land, that when they're in the land, God blesses them. When they're out of the land, God doesn't necessarily bless them. Again, kind of like the ark. In the ark, you're under protection. Out of the ark, out of protection. Same way with our relationship with Christ. In Christ, following Christ's ways, protection. Out of Christ, out of Christ's ways, Destruction. Hmm. For walking in fellowship with Christ, God can bless us. If we walk away from Jesus because of sin, God can't bless us the same way. The fifth covenant is a Mosaic covenant, a conditional covenant found in Deuteronomy 11. Promise Israelites a blessing for obedience and a curse for disobedience. Keep my commandments, I will bless you. Much of the Old Testament chronicles the fulfillment and the cycle of judgment of sin. That's a whole cycle of sin. God can't, you know, makes them go into, you know, takes them out of his blessing, and they come back around, repent, and come back into God's blessing. And then what do they do? Sin again. And that's what the, you know, the Old Testament, it chronicles all that. Um, and then the sixth one is the Davidic covenant. This is an unconditional covenant found in 2 Samuel Seven, it's when God, uh, God dwelled in a you know, tent on the earth. In other words, everywhere Israel went, they took this tent with them, and they would reset it up, and, and that's where God would come down and, and speak to the high priest and speak to Israel and all this kind of stuff. And then David became king over Israel, and he got enough land, and he conquered enough people, and he's sitting there going, I have a palace. I have a beautiful palace that I live in. And today you can go over there and find some of the ruins of those palaces that they've dug, dug up, even since, um, uh, even since uh, I went last time in, in uh, 2008. They've even found more in the city of David that they, they call it. And, uh, and he basically said, I live in this beautiful palace. What about you, God? You're still in a tent. I'm going to build you the biggest palace I could ever build. And God said, no, 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 wait a second. You've been a, a fighting king. You, you have too much blood on your hands. You can't build me a temple because the temple has to be pure. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to promise to bless your family line and ensure that your kingdom will live forever, in other words, have an everlasting kingdom, if you let your son build it and not you. So David did all the prep work for that. 
And when David died, Solomon started building the temple. And Jesus is from the line of what? David. So we see that fruition there. We see the, the end result there. And uh, as the son of David is the fulfillment of this covenant. And the last covenant is, is the new covenant. This is found in Jeremiah 31. And he was thinking of the Mosaic Covenant, Jeremiah was, and that they had blown it. You know, the whole idea of you obey me and I will bless you. In fact, you might remember in the Mosaic Covenant, Moses was up receiving the law on the mountaintop. And what were the people doing? As the, uh, uh, oh, I saw this not too long ago uh, in the paper. A, a comic, you know, one of those one-scene comic, and Moses was up on the mountain, and they were building a golden trump face. So, I mean, a, you know, instead of the calf. But the people were down building a, a, a golden calf and worshiping ungods, in other words, not true gods, little g-gods. When Moses was up there, it's kind of an interesting thing. But the way the new covenant works is, it's, not ba- it's based on faith, and it's based on belief. It's not based on our actions. Because if it was based on our actions, we would never get to heaven. The new covenant is only dependent on God's grace and our belief. Promise that God would forgive sin and have a close, unbroken relationship with his people. Well, who are his people? Well, first we think of the Jews, right? But all over the scriptures we see that we are adopted into his kingdom. In other words, in a sense, if you're a believer, you're a Jew. Did you know that? Yeah, you're adopted into his kingdom. And if he calls his people the Jewish nation, then we're partly Jew. Okay, now you can only go so far with that before people start freaking out and getting upset. But I'm just saying, that's what the scriptures say. That God would have this unbroken relationship with his people, and that is you and I. Because the Spirit of God lives within us. God wants us to live for him because he lives in us. This covenant is more than a, you know, Noahic covenant. In other words, the covenant with Noah. I will, I will destroy man by water. This covenant says, you are mine forever for those who believe. You're mine forever, so don't doubt that. And I'm going to save you from the coming judgment. See, that will happen, but this time not by water. This time it'll be by fire. You know, we often think, why would God destroy them during the flood? And to answer that, really all you've got to do is look around in today's world, right? It's gotten more corrupted, more and more, worse and worse, worse and worse. Where good has become bad, and bad has become good, as the scriptures say. We see it on the news every day. We see it out there in the world. Just pick up a newspaper. Look on the internet. That's how you answer that question. What Satan has done to this world is sad. The things that are acceptable in our society is just crazy. While society says belief in God is not acceptable. I mean, think about that. You're called the crazy one because you believe in a God. You're called the crazy one because you believe in a Savior that wants goodness, that wants so many great things for this world. Yet, the world says that is not right. How sad is that, right? Well, that's all I have for today. So why don't we stand and we'll pray and worship team will lead us out. I do want to finish with saying that God upholds his covenants. 
If you're in a relationship with Jesus Christ, you're in a covenant with God that he will not break. And that's the greatest thing that you can do for yourself. It's the greatest thing that you can do for your kids as you lead them, as you guide them. You guide them toward a covenant with God, a relationship with God. It's the greatest thing you could ever do. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for being faithful to your people. That throughout all of creation, man has gone against you. Yet you have a love for people. You have a desire for a relationship with every one of us that are standing here, Lord. And we thank you for that. We thank you for being a God who, who holds to certain standards. Who holds for the truth. Who is gracious. Who is understanding. Who holds to the the contract that you've made with us, that if we just believe in you, we're yours forever. That we will never have to doubt that. We thank you for doing that, Lord. As we come before you, we worship you, Lord. May we allow the Holy Spirit to really envelop our whole being. That as we walk out into this world, we see the people like you see them in need of a Savior, that they're searching for something, and that you could use us to bring them towards you would just be an amazing feat. Now, Lord, bless you and keep you. The Lord's face shine down upon you. And may he be your everlasting God. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.